This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Damien Carrick here. Today on The Law Report, as we race to decarbonise the economy, where does that leave the rights of Indigenous people? We are still, as a world, looking at doing it on the backs of the most vulnerable people, of Indigenous people or the developing world. And that can't be the path towards sustainability, even if lithium or copper are incredibly valuable in this struggle. This tension exists all around the world. But there is one project in particular that has strong links to Australia. It's the plan by mining giants Rio Tinto and BHP to develop the world's largest copper mine. It's at a place called Oak Flat in the US state of Arizona, on land that is sacred to the local Apache people. The issue was raised at Rio Tinto's recent AGM in Perth. It was a question put to the board's chairman, Dominic Barton, and also to the company's CEO, Jakob Stausholm. Kaya, hello, my name's Hannah McGlade. I'm from the Kurin Manang Noongar people and a member of the UN Permanent Forum for Indigenous Issues. What is the board's response to the risk concerning the destruction of a deeply significant site of worship for the Western Apache tribes? How can the board justify its plans given the company's commitments to free prior informed consent? And does the board have any genuine intention of preventing these serious human rights violations rather than simply apologising for them after they've been committed? Thank you very much uh, for, for your statement and also for your questions. And as you said, we've, there's been a lot of reflection and process in terms of how we work to have the social license, work with the local communities to make sure that people are comfortable with the mining that we do. I'd want to say a couple of things about resolution in that situation. It, of course, represents one of the most significant copper reserves in the United States, representing about 25% of the reserves. Over the last decade, Rio Tinto has been working uh, with the 11 tribes, the First Nation groups that are there to discuss how that would be done, as well as the Forest Services group. We, of course, are very well aware of, of the issues that are being raised. We're spending a lot of time to make sure that we understand where they are and what happens. Five board members have, in fact, spent time in the last year in resolution. I was there myself. I spent time looking at the site, spending time actually uh, to look at the San Carlos Apache territory as, as well. We are going through this very carefully, following all of the processes that are there. We are getting immense pressure to proceed because of the copper reserves that are there. We are still steadfastly holding to the process to make sure that uh, if we are to do something, it has to be done properly uh, in, in the way that we, we go through it. But Jakob, you may want to... Yeah, thank you. Thanks for raising the issue, which is very, very complex. It's not more than a month and a half ago I was uh, in Arizona and uh, met with a number of um, First Nations uh, leaders. Uh, there's a lot of support for the project from many uh, groups, uh, but there has been resistance from uh, certainly parts of the San Carlos uh, tribe. I visited for the first time the San Carlos uh, Reservoir and I spoke to various members of the council. 
so we are engaging and we have not, not drawn any conclusions, but we're going through a process right now. And right now it's actually not so much Rio Tinto. It's a, it's a kind of a nation-to-nation -nation process between the U.S. Forest Service and uh, the various uh, First Nations. Uh, so this has been a very long process. It's been going on for eight, nine years, and, um, and we'll have to see where, where we land. But it goes without saying. It's not just a matter of of uh, um, government approvals. It's also a matter of us convincing ourselves it's the right thing. Uh, but I think one has to be very careful of draw conclusions before we've gone through the full, full engagement. Thank you for your response. I reiterate that all San Carlos, all Apache tribes, tribal councils have all opposed the destruction of this important sacred site. It is akin to the Jukun Gorge site and you should not be doing it and claiming you're expecting respecting Indigenous people's right to culture, respecting UN rights when you are going on this path. That exchange from this month's Rio Tinto AGM in Perth. Associate Professor Hannah McGlade, a member of the UN Permanent Forum for Indigenous Issues there, referencing the destruction at Yukon Gorge of a 46,000-year-old shelter and sacred site in WA, which was destroyed by Rio Tinto in 2020. Professor Kristen Carpenter is the Director of the American Indian Law Program at the University of Colorado Boulder. Professor Carpenter, where is the site of this proposed resolution copper mine? The area is in the Apache people's traditional territory. It's in the high desert. It's a beautiful place with water and trees and shrines to the um, Apache spirit world. And it's a place um, near the reservation where Apache people have long conducted religious ceremonies, where young women have their coming-of-age rituals, and where there are a number of spiritual beings that inhabit the natural world there. It's also within a national forest, even though it's Apache traditional land, and that's what gives the United States government at least their purported authority to transfer the land to a mining company. Can you describe the proposed mine and its dimensions and what it would do to this land? The law has transferred 2,400 acres of traditional Apache lands to Rio Tinto through Resolution Copper. And within that 2,400 acres of land, the proposed mine would go 7,000 feet deep. The uh, copper um, ore is very deep under the Earth's surface. And even when the mining is done in 50 or 60 years, it would leave a crater two miles wide and a thousand feet deep. Um, that's even after all of the mitigation activities. And I should say also the effect is not just on the land, but also the water. Um, you may know that copper mining involves a process where the earth and the minerals are crushed and water is used to separate the useless uh, minerals from the copper, which is what's valuable here. And I saw a recent report indicating that over the life of the mine, it's going to use 250 billion gallons of water for that purpose. And that would be enough to um, supply a city, a 140,000 person city, enough water for its use every, 40, uh, every year for 40 years. And so between the, the land and the water, this mine would have really long lasting um, effects. 
At the recent AGM in Perth, the chair of the Rio Tinto board, Dominic Barton, talked about the role mining plays in the transition to green energy. According to the International Energy Agency, if the world is to meet the Paris climate goals, we will need 700 million tonnes of copper in the next 20 years. The world's installed wind power capacity must reach over 6,000 gigawatts, approximately eight times the current level, and we need to do this by 2050. But to put that in perspective, one wind turbine of three megawatts requires 300 tons of steel, five tons of copper, three tons of aluminum, and two tons of rare earths. And electric vehicles and battery storage will raise lithium demand more than 40 times by 2040. Cobalt and nickel could increase over 20 times over the same period. So we have a critical role to play in enabling this energy transition, supplying essential min minerals, including copper, lithium, high-grade iron ore, and aluminum, all of which are vital for the transition to a low-carbon economy. However, Within our new purpose, finding better ways to provide the materials the world needs, there also lies a fundamental tension. Meeting the needs of both the energy transition and continued global growth raises environmental and societal dilemmas. As a business and as a society, we need to acknowledge and balance these dilemmas in our decision-making as they involve some difficult trade-offs. Professor Carpenter, now this mine is the largest proposed copper mine in the world and copper is used in electric vehicles and this mine will be able to really contribute to the supply of copper for US car manufacturers, um, a large percentage of what they need to build EVs into the coming decades. This mine is important economically, environmentally, in terms of the building of the green economy, and also perhaps strategically in terms of ensuring the ability of the US to have a, a strong manufacturing base. These are important considerations to, to weigh up when deciding whether or not to build this mine. Well, that's right. And there are arguments coming from all sides. And I do understand that copper, which is the, the ore here, is a major component of electronic vehicles used in electric vehicles, I should say, motors, batteries, um, wiring, charging stations, and so on. And of course, uh, electric vehicles are considered to be one of the steps toward um, a greener economy and a greener um, set of transportation um, opportunities. And it's also projected that um, the mine would bring, I think, 3,700 jobs to the um, area around the mine so that there would be both impacts on um, the green economy as well as more immediate jobs. I think some of the rhetoric around the utility of this mine for electric vehicles and maybe for the, the greening of the economy generally could be overstated, however, because there's nothing in the law that requires this copper to be used for electric vehicles anywhere, much less in the U.S. And some commentators are suggesting the likelihood is that this copper is going to end up in China. It might be used 
for vehicles or transportation there. It might even be used for uh, defense in the Chinese security system, which I think Americans might need to consider as they're mulling over the wisdom of this mine from a, a security perspective. And the land is currently publicly owned land administered, I understand, by the Forest Service. Is that right? Yes, you've got it right. Um, and our American Indian law history is all always complicated, but these are definitely Apache traditional lands. And as in many instances during the period of conquest and colonization, the United States government declared ownership um, over what were previously Apache lands. There is some treaty argument that the courts haven't fully considered. There's an 1850s treaty between the United States and the Apache people that I, I don't think has been fully litigated with respect to reserved rights, reserved property that the Apache may have in this land. But the current posture of the United States is that it owns and manages this land through the Forest Service, as you said. And by virtue of the property clause of the U.S. Constitution, it has the authority to dispose of it, which means that it can sell that land as uh, Congress approved in a 2014 piece of legislation that would transfer this land um, to Resolution Copper, as you said, which is an entity of, of Rio Tinto. And this, you know, was in the making for years and years, and it's always been controversial. And ever since that congressional enactment, there have been challenges to it, not only from the tribes, but from other interests as well. Let's talk about those legal challenges. There are a number. There's one uh, under the First Amendment of the Constitution, which protects religious freedom. Tell me about that challenge, that legal challenge, and where it's at. So for the Apache people, the destruction of this area would make it impossible to conduct certain ceremonies, including these coming-of-age ceremonies for girls. And under the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, Congress is prohibited from making any law that would infringe upon the free exercise of religion. And the argument of Apache Stronghold, which is a coalition of Apache people and others, is that by transferring this land, the sacred site, to a multinational mining company that's going to destroy it, the United States is infringing upon the Apache's religious beliefs in violation of the Constitution. And that lawsuit is making its way through the courts. It has recently gone uh, through the Ninth Circuit, which has reviewed it for the second time, and, and we haven't seen a decision there yet. Uh, tell me about challenging the land transfer and the administrative process by which it was transferred from the federal government to the mine. Yeah, so the other main advocacy strategy is being pursued by the San Carlos Apache tribe itself. And this is one of 574 federally recognized tribal governments in the United States. It has the authority to represent the San Carlos Apache people in dealings with the United States. And so under several laws, the United States government, including the Forest Service, has the obligation to consult with tribal governments like San Carlos when it proposes undertakings that may adversely affect the Indian people or their lands or their resources. 
And so that obligation to consult is definitely triggered by this case. And the San Carlos Apache people have argued that the federal government did not adequately discharge their obligation to consult with the tribe. And I think that's pretty clear in that the tribe is completely opposed to this mine and to the extent that the U.S. is going forward with it, it's over the strenuous objections of the tribe. Additionally, the um, tribe is the party that would have the treaty claims as well as the claims that the federal government has a trust responsibility to take care of Apache lands and resources and religion. The current state of the San Carlos Apaches um, litigation is that they had originally challenged an environmental impact statement of the federal government that would have allowed the mine to go forward. And once the San Carlos Apache tribe challenged the environmental impact statement, the Biden administration temporarily withdrew it. And I think the idea was to improve this consultation process, to reconsider some of the environmental and cultural issues. But recently, the administration has signaled that it is about to re-release the environmental impact statement. And I think at that point, we'll see how the San Carlos Apache tribe might handle the next um, phases of opposing this mine. And what legal steps might that opposition take? I'm just speculating here, but I'm guessing that the San Carlos Apache tribe might um, sue to challenge the final environmental impact statement, um, arguing on various procedural and substantive grounds that it failed to meet legal standards under the National Historic Preservation Act, um, the National Environmental Protection Act, perhaps even the treaty claims and bring some of the issues that Apache Stronghold as a coalition or as a 501c3 didn't have the standing to bring. So San Carlos will be in a, in a position to really make the arguments for the tribal government. I should say, too, that the San Carlos Apache tribe was recently at the United Nations. And, you know, as a proactive advocacy strategy, the tribe is not waiting around for this environmental impact statement to come out. And I think quite rightly has decided to bring to the world community's attention the threat of violation of their human right to religion, the environmental points we just discussed, as well as the um, United States failure to properly consult or receive the consent of the tribe before making this decision. And so there's really a, a multifactored um, strategy going on here. And I imagine it's going to be litigation, diplomacy in the international arena, and probably a shareholder advocacy strategy to communicate with the Rio Tinto shareholders, again, about this lack of corporate responsibility. What do you make of the way that Rio Tinto has approached this development proposal and its relations with the Indigenous people of the region? Well, I think that all states, nation-states, but also corporations have an obligation to consult with and obtain the free prior and informed consent of Indigenous peoples before they embark on a project like this that would adversely affect their interests. And I'm somewhat surprised because I understand that 
Rio Tinto was really excoriated for its previous activities, destroying an Australian sacred site and an ancient site. The, the, the Yukon Gorge Caves. Yes, yes. And the Apache people actually met with some of the Australian Aboriginal people when we were all recently at the United Nations and, and learned more about it. But my understanding was that Rio Tinto had indicated after the fallout of that incident that it would never again trample on Indigenous rights without going through the process of consultation understanding, avoiding the destruction of irreplaceable cultural areas. To paraphrase what I observed from the AGM, they also sort of said, look, the Indigenous community is broadly supportive of this development. There are some elements within it who are critical, but they are working through that. You know, that sounds to me like somewhat of a divide and conquer strategy. And in any community, of course, people might have a range of viewpoints, but it's very clear as a matter of federal Indian law that the party authorized to represent the Apache people is the San Carlos Apache tribal government here, possibly also the White Mountain Apache tribal government. There isn't a huge question in the United States about who has that authority. And even if Rio Tinto finds, you know, one or 12 or 25 Apache people who might be open to copper mining, that's not really the standard. The standard is whether the federally recognized tribes have consented to the project. There is indeed a another mine also in the western part of the United States, I think at Thacker Pass in, in Nevada, where this clash between climate change mitigation and the rights of Indigenous people has really come to the fore. And I, I understand that that's a lithium mine project. Can you tell me about that? So the Shoshone people who have long um, occupied Aboriginal lands throughout Nevada and have brought a number of cases to the United Nations to try to protect those lands are facing the, the latest challenge, a proposed um, lithium mine, again on public lands, not unlike the Oak Flat case, um, that are to them a sacred place. And so they're trying to argue that whether as a matter of Aboriginal title or religious freedom or historic preservation, they should be able to protect those lands from the lithium extraction process, which is also very environmentally destructive. Some of the um, Shoshone and Paiute people were at the United Nations to make statements about this and to try to bring it to the attention of the world community. And I think one of the interesting points is that while we all agree, I think, maybe not everybody, but many people agree that we need to commit to climate change mitigation, can the best or can the only way to do that be the destruction of Indigenous people's sacred lands? Is, is that the best approach? And can that be sustainability to destroy, you know, a religious site of indigenous people who've taken care of this land for hundreds or thousands of years. You know, those are some of, some of the counterpoints that I've heard indigenous peoples raise um, when it comes to the green economy and the way that it might threaten um, their own lands, livelihoods and religions. 
It's a very thorny issue, though, isn't it? I mean, lithium, copper, these are essential, absolutely essential to the transition to the green economy and and, uh, balancing destruction. The price being demanded of Indigenous people as caretakers of the land and and with their close connections to the land um, versus, quote-unquote, the greater good, this is, you know, incredibly difficult territory. It is, that's for sure. And I think that's why, you know, we find ourselves in litigation or negotiation or diplomacy at the United Nations. If these were easy questions, we as human beings might not be struggling over them so much. I think there are some answers here. One is that Indigenous peoples have their own laws, customs, and traditions regarding land management and resources. And we've often disregarded those in the United States when it comes to federal law or internationally. And if we could surface Indigenous people's own laws, customs, and traditions, their perhaps, um, you know, ideas and practices about stewardship or regeneration, what land is sacred versus appropriate for development, we might have, um, you know, a more balanced, more fulsome conversation. Because currently, I think what's unfortunate is that even in the transition from, you know, the carbon economy to the green economy, we are still, as a world, looking at doing it on the backs of the most vulnerable people, of indigenous people or the developing world. And that can't be the path um, towards sustainability, even if lithium or copper are incredibly valuable in this struggle. So, my own view is to surface and respect some of Indigenous people's own laws, customs, and traditions, to recognize that they have a place at the table with national governments and with corporations to negotiate solutions to these problems. And, you know, maybe there will be agreements about conserving some land and developing other lands, but those must occur through a process that is fair and is just and doesn't assume that it's fine to destroy an indigenous religion in order to power electric cars. Professor Kristen Carpenter, Director of the American Indian Law Program at the University of Colorado, Boulder. Curtin University Associate Professor Hannah McGlade raised her question at the Perth Rio Tinto AGM just days after returning from a meeting of the UN Permanent Forum for Indigenous Issues in New York. Hannah McGlade says we are beginning to see disputes between green energy projects and Indigenous people come before the courts. We've seen a case in Norway where the Supreme Court found wind farming and uh, its effect um, has been very detrimental to the Sami reindeer herders. The Supreme Court found that it was uh, a violation of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Article 26, which protects the rights of Indigenous peoples and uh, also minorities. And certainly through South America, we are hearing of this. We're hearing of land grabbing of Indigenous peoples' lands for mining and development. And um, it's, it's particularly an issue now as the world needs to transition to green energy. 
I understand that there there are in other countries, in other parts of the world, issues around hydroelectric dams in pristine areas where, where Indigenous people live. And also there have been issues, I think, around solar farms in, in, in other parts of the world. Are you aware of development projects in Australia where this tension exists between green energy or mining, which will, will help with the transition, or green energy projects and Indigenous rights? I'm not aware of any cases that have fled as yet to national tension. What I can say, though, is that it's certainly going to be an area to watch. We are going to see disagreements here and we're going to see these tensions. We know that. I've heard it described as the tsunami that is coming, and I believe that is probably the case. So what is the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues calling for to address this tension, this tsunami which is coming? We're focusing our meeting next year on this very issue and certainly we want to see increased uh, respect and realisation of the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And uh, we, we believe that national action plans are clearly warranted. We also want to see a binding convention on business and human rights. At this time, we have the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, and states do have important duties in that respect. But certainly there is more to be done internationally in terms of our binding international human rights law. But we can see from the Sami case that, in fact, there are legal rights being upheld at this time. Curtin University Associate Professor Hannah McGlade. And that's all we have time for today. The Law Report acknowledges the copyright of Rio Tinto in the recordings of the AGM that you've been hearing. A big thanks to producer Christina Kukolia and also to technical producer Brendan O'Neill. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more Law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.